Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. So I, I want to share with you there. Uh, I was talking just a second ago about kind of the emptiness of of that, uh, what felt like a personal enrichment exercise after we had just spent this time with uh, these amazing disciples of Jesus. Um, <laughs> that started on Monday morning, February 12th. So the Super Bowl ended in Turkey at about 6.30 a.m. on Monday morning. Um, I was up at four because I was stressed. I had one more session to teach. I taught three two-hour discipleship sessions. Um, and the other pastor that was with us, John Brown from Holland, Michigan, he taught three two-hour sessions. And John and I were laughing about how, like, we had to pay to come on this trip, but if you asked anybody in the U.S. to come to a conference and teach three two-hour sessions, you'd have to pay them through the nose to get them there. Um, but we paid to be there. We were excited to be there, but it was, it was tiring. It was exhausting. And by the last day, um, I was preparing my lesson, and I was overwhelmed with what we were doing. I was overwhelmed by the stories that I was hearing of the people that we were serving and that we were, we were spending time with. Um, and going into my last session, we were teaching on Christian virtues. Uh, each one of our sessions touched on two Christian virtues. And my last session, which was the last session of the conference, was supposed to be on courage. Now, I am teaching... 26 Iranian Christians, some of whom have literally lost all of their family relationships, many of whom were baptized the previous Saturday and would be arrested if the police in their home found out they were baptized, about courage. Let me be clear. Following Jesus has cost me almost nothing. I've been a follower of Jesus my entire life. And other than maybe giving up a more lucrative career, and other than having a few awkward conversations with some people in my life, following Jesus has cost me next to nothing. And I'm supposed to teach on courage to people who have literally given up much of their lives for this. Now, how do you do that? So I woke up at four, stressed out of my mind about what I am going to say, what am I going to do in this last session with the most courageous people I've ever met in my life talking about courage. And that's what was going through my mind when I got a text message from John Opgenorth, who's the president of Words of Hope. He was one of our team leads there. And he, he texted us at 6, 6 a.m. and said, hey guys, the Super Bowl's on channel 34. And we we're like, that's cool. We can watch the Super Bowl in Istanbul. We should do, you know, so I'm, I'm in my room. I turn to channel 34 and the Super Bowl is on and the commentary is in German, which was just hilarious and awesome. Um, and I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm trying to care. I really am. I know so many people at home are, care so much about this and it matters so much to people and I can't. I cannot care. It cannot make a, a 
difference to me. In fact, in the moment, all it felt like was a monumental waste of money and energy. The Super Bowl. Now I'm sitting there, and, and so I'm, I'm already feeling stressed about teaching courage to a bunch of courageous people. I got the Super Bowl on, and now I'm feeling guilty for judging everybody back home who cares about the Super Bowl. Because I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to judge anybody. I don't want to stand in judgment over anybody. But the reality was, in that moment, it could not have mattered less in comparison to what we were doing, in, to compare, in comparison to spending time with these followers of Jesus and discipling them. And I couldn't care. So I watched to the end. I was disappointed with the result. Sorry if you're a KC fan. I really want to see KC go down. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. And so I got up at, out of my room at 7.30 or so and went down to breakfast and sat with all these people and had a great conversation and went and taught my session and just praised these people we were with. And let them know, look, what I'm teaching on today is really more for us Americans who are in the room than it is for you because this is the life you live. And it went well. We continued to build great relationships. And then that evening we celebrated and we had a big party. We hugged necks and we said goodbye. And then 20, 22 or so of these people who had been free for five days, who had been able to worship freely, women who were allowed to let their hair down literally, got on a plane and flew back to Tehran and won't get to do that again. Some of them ever, and some until the next conference. As we were leaving, one of the women that I was talking to, she spoke English better than most others, and so we had a little bit more conversation. But uh, one of the women I was talking to is one of the leaders of this group. She lives in Tehran. She's very successful. Um, She lives about as well as she can in Tehran. And uh, she's been to many of these conferences, and she said, every time I go home, I have about two weeks of depression because I'm alone again. She didn't have a church to gather with. She didn't have other Christians around her. They don't get together and sing. They don't have a chance to sit and disciple one another. Some do get together in house churches. There was one family there, one of the most, <laughs> one of my favorite people, Ganim Kurosh, not his real name. Ganim Kurosh, uh, he brought his family. His two 20-something-year-old daughters and his wife, and they came to this conference. It was the first time at a conference. They host a house church. We were sitting in a men's group, and there's a coffee maker about 15 feet away from us, and Karush tells us, there's a mosque about that far away from my house. And every week, he gathers 18 brave Christians in his home to worship Jesus and to celebrate together to invest in this faith, to disciple one another. 
after uh, baptisms on, on Saturday night, <laughs> we, we did this. Uh, baptisms were so fun. When we got to the hotel we were going to be staying at, remember it's winter. It's still winter in Istanbul. Istanbul is not like Middle East. It's not hot. It's not. It's so February is cold. And so it's 40, 50 degrees during the day. And uh, we get to the hotel we're going to be doing the conference at. And the pools outside have not been cleaned. They're not emptied. They've not been cleaned. And so they're green and they're uh, dirty looking. And we Americans get there about a day before the Iranians. We or earlier in the day than the Iranians. We're looking out at the pool and we're like, I, I guess that's where we're baptizing people. <laughs> like they're really going to test our faith here. <laughs> we're going to go into this nasty, murky green water and baptize folks. Uh, and then later that day we find out, no, 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 there's an indoor pool we're going to be baptizing people in. Some of these folks who have come to this conference have waited seven, eight years to be baptized. There's no Christian community where they are. There's no one to baptize them, which means they've waited seven or eight years to take communion. They've never taken communion before, ever. And so we, uh, we find out the details of how we're going to baptize people. We go in assuming nine people are going to be baptized. Nine people are signed up to be baptized. But there are three teenagers there who have come, and they're not really sure about this faith. Their parents are Christians, but they've got questions. They're not really sure. The first day they tell us, I'm not sure about following Jesus. I'm I'm not a Muslim, but I'm not sure I'm a Christian yet. Um, And so we we spent time with them. And because I was the youngest person, the youngest American there, um, they really latched onto me. And so I spent a lot of time sitting with these guys and girls and just answering questions and talking, doing the youth pastor thing, getting peppered with questions. And, uh, and then by Saturday, when we're going to baptize people, these three say, I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus. And so that night we have to wait until the indoor pool closes so we can have it. The management of the hotel lets us have the pool privately. To ourselves. And even though we're in Istanbul and we could be baptizing people outside in public, we it's too cold. We're not going to be out there. And so we go <laughs> at 10 p.m. in the pitch black, we go downstairs three floors underground to a pool that looks like it's been cut into a cave. And it was the perfect metaphor for what we were doing, right? Hiding three floors underground in the dark in a cave, we're going to baptize people. And so these 12 people come in, and John Brown and I, the, the two pastors, we get to baptize 12 Christians, 12 followers of Jesus. Among them were two women who had had their head coverings on the entire time we'd been meeting. They were the only two who wore a head covering all the time. And then they were baptized, and we never saw a head covering again. There's nothing wrong with covering your head. There's nothing wrong with wearing a head covering. But when it's a sign of the oppression of your government, when it's a sign of the oppression of the society in which you live and you let that go, it's a freedom that we can't imagine. And so we baptized these 12 followers of Jesus. And um, I had uh, one of the young women who was with us well, on our team. I said I was the youngest person. That's not true. There was an 18-year-old girl, John Brown's daughter, came with us. Um, so I had her take photos of the baptisms. And afterward, I was sitting, uh, the next day I was sitting at dinner and showing uh, two of the young women uh, photos of the baptisms. These two were baptized during the time, and they were so excited. They were so excited to see these photos. And they said, all I want to do is put that all over my social media, and I can't because I'll be arrested if I do. They broke my heart. Totally broke my heart. The most joyous moment 
in these girls' lives, they can't tell anybody at home about because they don't know who to trust. You see, for, for these folks who came from Iran to join us, their problem is that most of them are from a Muslim background. And in Iran, it's illegal to convert from Islam to anything else. And when you do convert from Islam to anything else, you become at best a second-class citizen. Honestly, if you're not a Shia Muslim in Iran, you're a second-class citizen already. If you're a Sunni Muslim, or you're a Sufi, or you're Christian, or you're Baha'i, or you're Zoroastrian, anything other than Shia Islam, you're really a second-class citizen. In fact, for a lot of jobs, they'll ask you in the application, what's your religion? And when you write Islam, then you have to write what kind of Muslim you are. Are you a Sunni or a Shia? And if you're anything other than Shia Muslim, your chances for advancement, your chances for growth are nil or next to nil, if you can even get the job in the first place. And forget working in any kind of public post or government position. That's not even an option. And so for a lot of these folks who are not Shia Muslim, to be honest and say, I'm, I'm something else, is to literally cripple their own job prospects, their own prospects for growth, their own prospects for moving on. Right. Um, when you're a Muslim background Christian living in Iran, the danger of arrest is always present, ever present. Now, most of the time, what's going to happen is you're going to be uh, shunned by your family. You're, you're not going to have the social relationships that you once had. You're going to lose a lot of those because the people, your, your family members who are really devout are not going to, they're not going to associate with you anymore. Christians can't inherit property from Muslims and so if you were from a Muslim family and you, you became a Christian, you can no longer inherit anything from your parents or from anybody in your family. Uh, Muslim background Christians can't adopt children. They're not allowed to adopt. Um, they, they can technically adopt from one of the Armenian Christian or, or, or uh, Assyrian Christian churches, um, but that never really happens. They, uh, for the women... Um, if they're married to a Muslim man and he chooses to divorce them, they lose their children, they lose their prospects, they lose their community. That's it. They're done. If he chooses not to divorce them, then they're in a mixed, relation, mixed uh, religion marriage um, where the man has all of the political and social power, and she has none. And so now she is under the thumb of her husband. Now, the, the reality is for most Iranians, most Iranians are not highly devout Muslims. Most Iranians are not like super hardcore fundamentalist Muslims. Most Iranians hate their government. In fact, in a recent poll, about 85 to 90% of the country did not approve of their government, did not approve of the state and the hardline positions it takes. But that just means that a lot of them are nominal Muslims or kind of secularized Muslim. But they still live within this culture in which men have all the power and women don't really have any. They don't have any options, they don't have any prospects. So when a woman comes to faith, and more often it's the wife that comes to faith first, if a woman comes to faith and her husband is not on board with it, she's cut off, she's done. There's very little that can be done for her. This is the reality for our brothers and sisters. This is the situation that our brothers and sisters in Iran live in. They can't be public about their faith. They can't share their faith. They can't talk about it. And yet they choose to live in it. They choose to follow Jesus. 
Let me be clear. It makes zero sense for an Iranian from a Muslim background to follow Jesus. It makes no sense whatsoever. There is zero incentive to do it. None. You lose your community, you lose your prospects, you become a second-class citizen, you might be arrested. And as I was trying to explain to my 10-year-old daughter, being arrested in Iran is scary because you just don't know what's going to happen. There's no due process, there's no guarantee of human rights. You could be arrested, interrogated, and let go. You could be arrested and sexually molested. You could be arrested and die. You just don't know. It all depends on who arrests you and where you are. That's the fear of being arrested in Iran. That's the fear for our brothers and sisters. And so these people who have zero social incentive to follow Jesus, who, for whom it makes zero sense to follow Jesus, nevertheless say, but I will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a Christian. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to go to another country to be baptized. And no, I can't tell anybody home about it. Many of them take the risk of sharing their faith with friends or neighbors who they don't know might rat them out. But they choose to. They choose to tell people about Jesus. Not knowing what the results will be, not knowing what it could cost them. And it won't just cost an awkward conversation or someone being upset with them. It could cost their relationships, it could cost their freedom. It doesn't make any sense at all. So why do they do it? Why does someone from a place where being a Christian, just being a Christian, means you're a second-class citizen, gives you no social prospects, and being a Muslim background Christian means you could be ostracized and lose your freedom? Why would you follow Jesus? Why would you identify as a Christian at all when it costs so much? Or why not, once you've chosen to be Christian, just lie on your applications, lie socially and say, hey, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still from a Shia family. Why would you insist on telling people you're a follower of Jesus when it doesn't give you anything good? Why? That's the question we have to ask. I mean, that's the question that's on my mind and on my heart. And I can only come up with one reason. And Jesus shares that reason in Matthew 13, 44 to 46. It'll be on the screen. I don't need to turn to it. This is what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. The people in these parables, the man in the field who's digging up the treasure, the person who finds the pearl of great price, is so captivated so captivated by the vision of the kingdom of heaven. They're so captivated by the person of Jesus. They don't have any choice 
It's worth everything. Jesus is worth everything. And they will sell everything they have to go and get it. The why for our brothers and sisters in Iran who choose to follow Jesus has nothing to do with social power. It has nothing to do with a comfortable life. It has nothing to do with, with uh, therapy and feeling better about themselves and getting the, getting the good feels from a worship service. It has nothing to do with any of that. These people have been captivated by the person of Jesus in such a way that they can't say no because nothing else makes sense. Nothing else makes sense at all. These people are courageous because they don't have any other choice. Jesus has captured their heart. Jesus has captured their lives. They have been drawn into him. And when they met Jesus, when they've met him and they've seen him, they've looked upon him and they've heard of God's grace and love, they've said, I don't have any choice but to follow him, to give everything for him to lay down all of my prospects for Jesus. Nothing else makes sense. And as someone who has been a follower of Jesus my entire life, who has paid almost no price to call myself a believer, a follower of Jesus, I have to ask, have I ever been captivated by Jesus in that? Am I regularly captivated by Jesus in such a way that if tomorrow truly claiming him, following him would cost me everything in my life, I would say I have no choice. In John chapter 6, Jesus was uh, teaching. He was teaching publicly. He was talking to a bunch of uh, religious leaders. And Jesus said, um, you have to eat my bread, eat my flesh and drink my blood or else you have no part of me. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And you, you must eat and drink of me in order to be my disciple and follow me. And we're told that the reaction to him was swift. People were deeply offended. Of course, right? You get to eat and drink your flesh and blood? Like, we're not cannibals. That's insane, Jesus. But instead of like clarifying things, instead of softening his tone, instead of pulling back on the hard words, Jesus just says, that's it. That's the truth. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you can have no part of me. And we're told that many of his followers left him that day. And he looks to the 12 apostles and the disciples that are left and he says to them, hey, so are you guys going to leave too? Because they're saying to him, this is a hard teaching. I don't understand it and I don't know how to do that. And the Apostle Peter looks at Jesus and says, Teacher, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's the response of our brothers and sisters in Iran. Where else could we go? Jesus has eternal life. Where else is there to go? Jesus is our source of life. Jesus is the God who loves us. Jesus is the one who reveals to us a God who is so different from the God we grew up believing in. That we are compelled to follow him, though it will cost us everything. Look, the whole health and wealth gospel, God will bless you with whatever you ask him for, doesn't work in a place like Iran. There's proof that that's heresy, that that's evil. 
If you can't preach the gospel of Jesus in a place where it will cost you everything and you'll get no benefit out of it, then your gospel is false. For our brothers and sisters who are living under a tyrannical regime, living not knowing what their future will be, and yet saying, Jesus is so compelling. Jesus is so beautiful. Jesus has the life that I long for. Jesus is the God that I desperately want to believe in, and I have no choice but to follow him and to give him literally everything. That's the situation of our brothers and sisters. And here comes the offensive part I was telling you earlier. Here's the real offense of the good news of Jesus. These people have met Jesus and been so compelled by him, so moved by him, that they would give up everything to follow him, literally, and knowing that it means no personal gain until either their government changes, they die, or Jesus returns. They've been so pushed that they know now that they've met him, a life without him is meaningless. And there's the truth of the gospel that should offend everybody. Because in the end, ultimately, at the end of all things, a life doing anything other than following Jesus is meaningless. He is the only one worth selling our entire lives for. He's the only one worth giving up everything for. If he's not true, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't die on a cross to pay for our sins, if he's not the source of eternal life, then these people are fools of the highest order. You and I are fools of the highest order. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, he didn't rise from the dead, and he doesn't offer us eternal life. We're fools if we follow him then. But if what he said is true, if Jesus truly is who he claimed to be, who the scripture claims him to be, who the good news of the gospel of Christ claims him to be, then doing anything else with our lives, then giving it to him and following him fully is foolishness and meaningless. This is the gospel of Christ. This is the good news of Jesus. And this is the challenge of our brothers and sisters around the world who have sold their lives for Jesus. This is the challenge of our brothers and sisters who get no gain from following him, but have paid the price. Way back in the third century AD, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Where Christians suffer, the gospel thrives. Why? Because the truth of the gospel is most clearly displayed in the places where it makes no sense to embrace it. Where it makes no sense to follow Jesus. Where it makes no sense to claim Jesus. And so as people who have been privileged, as people for whom it's cost us very little to nothing to follow Jesus, the challenge for us is not to seek persecution. It's not to beat ourselves up because we haven't suffered enough. Trust me, I went through all of that sitting in my hotel room wondering, what's my response here? 
It's not to make ourselves feel guilty because we're not in the same boat. It is to stand up, to look Jesus in the face and be captivated once again by his beauty and by his goodness and by his truth and by the life that he gives. And then it is to use all that privilege and power and wealth that we have as American Christians on behalf of our brothers and sisters who have none. To stand up, to share the gospel, to share the good news, to take all of the considerable resources that we have as a community, even a small community like this one, and to use them on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are suffering and struggling. To invest in the church in Iran, to invest in the church in North Korea, to invest in the church in China, to invest in the church in North Sudan, to invest in the church in Nigeria, to invest in brothers and sisters in places in the world where Christians are suffering and struggling and yet claiming Jesus above all when it costs them everything. It's to use the power and privilege we have on behalf of the powerless to do as Jesus has done for us and to lay down our lives, to lay down our wealth, to lay down the things that we have to build them up. Because the moment these places become free, the moment the regime in Iran changes and Christians are free to gather publicly and worship, the moment that something changes in North Korea and we see the church there, the moment that the church in China becomes free and those millions and millions of brothers and sisters there who are struggling, the moment those places become free, they will lead the global church. And we will look to them instead of them looking to us. And so, we do as Jesus has done. Who left his throne in glory to walk the dirt of the streets with us to bear our sin on his back to the point of death so that he could give us life. We sacrificially give and love our brothers and sisters. That's our call. That's the challenge of the suffering church around the world. And so if you want to further invest in knowing and learning, I have a couple resources for you. Uh, One is this prayer booklet from uh, Elam Ministries. Elam Ministries is a ministry in Iran. It's larger than Words of Hope. They're doing a lot of work on the ground. They've published this 30-day prayer guide for our brothers and sisters in Iran. You can go to Elam Ministries, E-L-A-M Ministries. Uh, Just Google it. It's the first thing that will pop up. And then right on their homepage, there's a kind of call to action. You can click the pray button and get this uh, 30-day prayer guide. It will. It's not only a guide for prayer, it's also informative about the situation of our brothers and sisters. The other option, and there's one of these on the table back there, um, but you can go to Open Doors. Careful Googling Open Doors. You're not careful. It's not a bad thing, but there's Open Door Ministries here in Denver. When you search Open Doors in Denver, you'll get to Open Door Ministries first. You're looking for Open Doors International. This is an organization that serves the persecuted church worldwide. They publish a worldwide watch list every year for the places that it's hardest to be Christian. Iran is number nine for this year. They've been number eight and number nine for many years uh, recently. Um, 
but they have a dossier on the country and on the situation for Christians and other religious minorities in the country. And so you can pick this up. This is the short dossier. They have a long, like 56-page dossier on uh, the situation in Iran. There's one back there. I have one here you can read. But those will give you a more full picture of how to pray for and how to care for our brothers and sisters, how we can use our considerable resources to serve our brothers and sisters who are struggling in the world. Here's the other thing you can do for our brothers and sisters in places that are struggling around the world. You can share your faith in Jesus. When we asked those who had gathered, when we asked the Iranian Christians, the Persian Christians who had gathered with us, what's the one thing that you want to be empowered to do? What's the one thing that you want for yourself more than anything? They said, I want to be better at sharing my faith. He said, I want to be better at telling people about Jesus. And I thought to the relationships I have and the conversations I've had about Jesus here. And the number of times that I've been afraid to share my faith or talk about Jesus with someone else because I'm afraid of an awkward conversation or I'm afraid of them saying no. And then you look into the eye of a brother or sister who says, sharing my faith could get me arrested, but I'm going to do it because I love this person and I love Jesus and I know Jesus loves them. And I go, how cowardly have I been? And so if we want to serve our brothers and sisters worldwide, one of the ways that we can do that is by stepping into the awkward spaces, stepping into the scary places, and sharing Jesus, talking about Jesus, sharing the love of Christ. Because what our brothers and sisters here know, that I think sometimes we forget, is what I said earlier. A life in the end, at the end of all things, doing anything other than following Jesus will be meaningless. And there's no greater thing a person can do than to give their life to Jesus, to follow him, because he's the God who loves them. He's the God who adopts them. He's the God who gives us life. He's the God who wipes away the rules and the regulations and says, I love you because I love you, and you are mine because you're mine. To the point that he goes to die upon a cross to save us from our sin and to give us new life.